0: Hello, this is the last in our series under the title Light for Life, looking at key truths of the Christian faith. Now Christianity provides us with help for the past, present and the future. We have forgiveness for our past, we have strength, God's strength in the present and great hope for the future. And the future is a subject of today's study. And now I'm going to ask Joel to give us our Bible reading. Thank you.
1: 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11 Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labour pains on a pregnant woman...
0: our statement of faith regarding the future says this. The Lord Jesus Christ will return in glory. He will raise the dead and judge the world in righteousness. The wicked will be sent to eternal punishment and the righteous will be welcomed into a life of eternal joy in fellowship with God. God will make all things new and will be glorified forever. Now one great theme of the Bible that encapsulates the whole story is a garden paradise lost and then a garden paradise restored in Genesis chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 it reads now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food in the middle of the garden with the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything humanity needed, including the best blessing of all, the presence of God was there. But there was also a choice. We could stick with the tree of life and enjoy God and paradise forever, or we could disobey and reach outside of paradise and choose t- to taste evil as well as good. We know the choice we made. Paradise was lost. But then the promise is that one day paradise will be found and some. Revelation 22 verse 1. Then the angel showed me, that's the Apostle John, the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations no longer will there be any curse the throne of god and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him god's original design for paradise was never trashed it is still on the agenda and nothing will stop god's plans paradise will be restored and even supercharged if you like let's here a further description of it in Revelation 21, verse 25. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now one massive difference with the paradise restored is that there's now no choice in this picture, no choice to reach outside of it and taste evil. You see, the people who will be there already did that. And they know they did. And they've experienced the waste that it was, the sadness that it brought and the guilt that came with it. But they've also now experienced the grace of God, the God that they sinned against, and they've already made their final choice to enjoy God in paradise forever through Jesus The future state will be very different from now. It will be spiritually superlative and physically fantastic. It will have no sin, nor sin's effects. Go back to Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from, from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And there's a strong implication that the things that prevent us human beings from really living, from reaching our full potential, will be finally removed. Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And that that begins now in degrees when we become Christians in this lifetime, but it will only get better. We will know God and we will experience him in ways that are beyond even the godliest Christian has ever enjoyed in this lifetime. The Apostle John's first letter, chapter 3, verse 2 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. In his prayer to his Father, we get a glimpse of the good things that Jesus has in store for us. In John 17 verse 3, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Then moving to verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So the future for a Christian will be spiritually superlative, but we are not destined for a bodiless existence floating ethereally on a cloud playing a magical harp. The future for a Christian will be spiritually superlative, but also physically fantastic. There will be a physically transformed world for us to live in, in which to enjoy God forever. We get an amazing picture in the Old Testament of this, in Isaiah 11, verse 6. It says, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed the bear, their young will lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then into the New Testament, uh, we see the imagery of uh, this new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And we're looking forward to it. 2 Peter 3 verse 13. This is our great hope that this world is going to be transformed. Physically fantastic. But what about our bodies? Aging, damaged, genetically flawed. What if we've died before all this comes to be? Well, these physical bodies as they are cannot live in the new creation. So in order to be ready, there will come a point where we are either resurrected and changed, or changed as we all hear a signal call from God. Two Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality so there's going to be a physical existence that will be new and fantastic and we will never be limited by illness, disease, never cut short by death. Now there are very seriously two very distinct destinies for all people. In a hundred years from now where will you be? Some say dead and buried and it won't matter. Something that will live on in some kind of way and that there will still be options available to us, may be some kind of reincarnation, but God reveals to us that there are only two possible destinations which last forever, and they are fixed in this lifetime. This is why if you're not a Christian, you need to become one, and why for Christians, we need to keep telling the world about Jesus. Two definite, distinctive destinations. Now, before the final events take place, there's going to come a rebellion. The rebellion will occur first. The Bible tells us that a, a mysterious character will be revealed. Some figure will emerge who is behind a great movement of rebellion just before Jesus returns. We're going to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction." And then verse 7 of the same chapter, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. The Apostle John refers to another character, the Antichrist, in 1 John, chapter 2, verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, Even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Verse 22. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. Now, Antichrist isn't a totally unique character. There were, as John says here, there were and are and will be Many people that deny that Jesus is the Christ. So the Antichrist may not seem at first anyone too unusual. It may be a character, may be part of a, a movement that builds up, and the indication is that the person or persons are people who once professed to believe, but now they lead a movement of anti Christian propaganda with worldwide influence, leading many people astray and stirring up persecution. the church which will reach a peak. This character, this movement, will in some way be opened up to to reveal who is behind it, the man of lawlessness, the devilish, lawless, anti-Christian power behind it all. And for many people, what has been creeping up slowly to a crescendo will hardly be noticed until the revealing, however that may come. We don't know exactly how these things will actually be come to pass eventually but when things appear to be at their darkest the man of lawlessness the antichrist is revealed it's horrible but jesus returns the lawless one will be revealed whom the lord jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming now revelation uses different terminology the beast The beast seems to equate to the man of lawlessness, the secret power behind evil in the world. And the face, the Antichrist, seems to equate in Revelation to the false prophet that's mentioned there. The visible but deceitful face man who speaks up and lies against Jesus, who subtly stirs up international persecution against God's people. And it looks like the church will come under the hammer of the worst persecution ever. It looks bleak. Revelation 19, verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. Now, when it comes to end time prophecy, Christians have often come to different opinions about the details. We don't have time to go into a fair description of even the major schools of thought. One of the key points of difference relates to the nation state of Israel. Mixed into this are different views on politics, so it's not a simple mix, is it, religion and politics? And we don't have enough time now to go into these things, but we can clearly see in the Gospels that Jesus' teaching on the end times does go along with his warnings and teachings for the, for the nation-state of Israel, for the people of Israel. If you read and study Matthew 24, Mark 13 and Luke 21, they are the key passages on this. Now, as you read those prophecies, you can see that some paragraphs specifically relate to the state of Israel, and some refer, in a more general sense, to believers across the world. Some seem to be referring to a localised event in the nearer future for the Israelites, and some things seem to refer to more distant events. They are distinct and yet overlapping. So as you read from one paragraph to another, it's hard to follow at times, but it's a common style of prophecy in the Old Testament, where a message relating to the contemporary situation, for example in Israel, morphs into prophecy for the more distant future, or more broadly to other nations. Now imagine a window, obviously giving light, and two pieces of tracing paper. And each piece of paper has a sketch which is distinct, But when you place those pieces over each other, with a light behind them, and you place them just in the right position, there are parts of each sketch which remain distinct, but other parts that overlap perfectly. And there it appears to be one image. And so when you study Jesus' teaching on end times and read prophecy throughout the Bible, keep that illustration in mind and it's also to have a a history book at hand to see what sadly happened to the nation of Israel leading up to and around AD 70. Now Jesus taught that before he returns certain things will occur to the nation of Israel and certain things will occur in the world in general and he moves from one focus to the other. So let's move on to the roar of the lion. In summary, the New Testament teaches that the gospel will be preached through all the world. We read that in Matthew 24, verse 14, and then the end will come. There will be great persecution of the church. There will be an attack on belief through Antichrist, and as John the Apostle said, the Antichrist was already at work back in the first century AD. But there seems to come a point where the forces of evil gather, there's a big build-up, and there's a character called the beast or the man of lawlessness who will be revealed. The destruction of the church seems possible in Revelation 19 verse 20 as this crescendo is is coming to its peak and the destruction of the church seems imminent the nations gather together but verse 20 says but the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The rest were killed with a sword coming out of of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And that's the end of them. So, in the end, there's not a drawn-out battle. Whatever form that potential battle builds up to, and we are dealing with symbolic language and prophecy after all, but there is some kind of a big build-up, a great threat. But then Jesus returns and notice noticed it's just his voice. It's just the roar of the lion that ends it all. And we see a parallel in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendour of his coming. We are taught in the New Testament to live with a constant sense of the nearness of the Lord's return. Now, God's not playing games with us. Revelation 22, verse 20, written at the end of the first century AD. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Jesus promises that he's coming soon. Now, yes, two to three thousand years is soon compared to eternity. And that's clear. But the Bible's teaching on second coming is not so much that we can tick tick a, a list off and have a definite countdown. It's more signs that keep every generation on their toes and looking up until the day. Now imagine you were a Christian in Rome during one of those times of persecution towards the end of the first century AD. The gospel had generally reached the whole of the world, throughout the Roman Empire, to Britain, to India even. There was horrible, horrible persecution. There were deceiving antichrist heresies. There were verbal attacks as well as physical attacks on the church. John said that antichrists were at work already. Several Roman emperors would appear to be the beast revealed. Would you not be tempted to think the Lord's return must be near? Or later in the 16th and 17th centuries AD, you're a Huguenot Protestant in France, suffering the psychological and physical sufferings from church and state in a terrible persecution. Would you not be tempted to think that the Lord's return was very soon? And then in China, in North Korea, even today, with the internet, the gospel is being preached over all the world with access like never before. And there in those countries, Christians are attacked, imprisoned, tortured, accused of madness, propagandas thrown against them. Is it not for them? Great tribulation? Many are thinking, no doubt. Maybe the Lord will return soon. The Bible's teaching on second coming. Not so much a list that we can tick off and have a definite countdown. But signs that keep every generation on their toes and looking up until that day. It is close. God's number, though, hasn't yet been fulfilled. Heaven is not yet fully occupied. But one day, maybe soon, and even though the West is not experiencing open physical persecution, as many countries are, there is much deception, much Antichrist activity. Faith is under attack. Maybe soon. We don't know when. But we do need to be ready, and we can be ready, And the question is, are you ready? So there will be an attack on belief through Antichrist. Just after the power behind the deception of Antichrist is revealed, Jesus will return to gather his people. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16 For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then, we will not have to worry about anything anyway ever again. So, just be ready. How? By becoming a Christian. By repenting of your sins by putting your faith in Jesus who died, who rose again to save you. Follow Jesus day by day. Be doing his business. Be about your master's business. Keep it simple. Be a Christian. Be ready. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 4 says, But you, brothers and sisters, Christians, are not in darkness, so that this day should should surprise you like a thief. My simple advice is don't worry about when. Don't worry about times we're not meant to know them. Just be ready by being a Christian and doing your master's business. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 12 on this. Verse 35. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks they can immediately open the door for him. Verse 40. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your spirit, soul and body be kept sound and blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and also will do it. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.